Good evening. So glad that you did not go home after dinner, but that you have uh, stuck around to give us a chance. So what we're going to do tonight is exactly what we do every week with the smaller group uh, up in the loft, and we're just going to continue a series we've been in on Christian belief. It's an overview of basic Christian doctrine, and uh, tonight is actually the first a week of two weeks that we're going to spend talking about the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And we're going to spend almost all of our time in the scriptures tonight. And so uh, what I've done is you have a handout. And those of you who've heard me teach in this sort of context before, you'll know this. uh, But you have in front of you 85% of what I'm going to say so that it's there and you can just take it with you and follow along. But there's also space for you to take notes if, uh, if that's helpful to you. And, uh, and I'm going to read a lot of scripture tonight, but I find it takes us a long time to get through it if everybody's turning. So I'm going to tell you what I tell the whole group whenever, or what I tell the other group whenever we're upstairs. You have the scripture references uh, there in front of you. I'm going to be reading scripture out loud, and I want to invite you later to go back and check and make sure that I'm not a heretic. But I'm not a heretic. So, uh, so I've given you the, uh, the references there. So let's just go ahead and get started. You see there uh, the introduction and what we always begin by reminding everybody about is that the Equip Institute exists to equip members of Taylor's First Baptist Church to think rightly about God and His Word for the sake of living rightly before God in His world. Theology is for life not just intellectual knowledge. And last week, if you would have been, or last time, if you would have been with us, uh, we actually did just a bunch of Q&A last week, but if you would have been with us the last time we had a regular session a couple of weeks ago, we did an overview of the doctrines of humanity and sin. What does it mean to be human? And what is sin? Where did sin come from? How has sin affected everything? This, tonight is the first of two sessions that will focus on the person of Jesus Christ. So what's the big idea? Uh, What do we mean when we're talking about the doctrine of Christ? Well, aside from the Holy Trinity, there is no more foundational Christian doctrine than Christology, or the study of the person and work of Jesus Christ. As Christians... We believe that Jesus of Nazareth is simultaneously both God and man. And that's a mystery that we can't fully wrap our minds around, but the Bible teaches it. It's true, but if you ever meet anybody who says, I can explain to you exactly what it means that Jesus is fully God and fully man, he's bluffing just a little bit. We're in the realm of mystery. There's, there's no other examples of any other being that is fully God and fully man. That's what makes Jesus unique. He is the eternal Son of God who became incarnate as a human man. He took upon himself all that it means to be human. He is the promised Messiah of Israel and the Savior of all who believe whether Jew or Gentile. He was conceived miraculously by the Virgin Mary. 
He lived a fully sinless life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He was crucified on a cross, and then he was raised bodily from the dead. Tonight, part one, what we're going to do is focus upon what the Scripture teaches about Jesus' person or his identity. And we're going to go from Genesis to almost Revelation and just look at the story of Jesus as it develops in the Scriptures. And then next week, for those of you who will be with us, uh, we'll focus upon how the church has debated Jesus' identity, uh, how we've worked out the ways that we talk about Jesus being fully God and fully human. We'll offer a systematic synthesis of Jesus' person, and we'll apply this topic to life and ministry. Then we're going to, in a couple of weeks, devote a week to the work of Christ or his saving actions that he's taken on behalf of humanity. But tonight, both because it fit with the schedule and because of what we're doing here, something a little bit different with the Institute for Everybody, uh, we're going to be just in the Scriptures uh, all night long. And what I'll do is talk about what the Scriptures say, and I'll periodically stop and just open it up for questions. And we'll go until about 7.30. So with that, let's talk about the Scriptures. We want to begin in the Old Testament, and we want to begin with the law, or what is sometimes called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. In the law, we find a foundational understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. First, we learn that there is a human son who will crush Satan and presumably conquer sin. Let me read to you from Genesis 3, 14 and 15. This is right after Adam and Eve are confronted in their sin. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." So there's this offspring of woman who's a he, a human son, who's going to crush Satan. But as we continue moving through the story, next we discover that God promises to bless the nations through Abraham, and he makes a special covenant with Abraham and his descendants. This is what Genesis 17, 1 through 8 says. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham." For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall shall come from you, 
And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. So God makes a special covenant with Abraham, and not just with Abraham, but through Abraham with his offspring. He says that Abraham is going to be the father of a multitude. And very quickly that begins to be fulfilled. Through Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who is also called Israel, God then pronounces a blessing on Jacob's second son, Judah, positioning him as the symbolic firstborn son and promising that one of Judah's descendants will rule all the peoples of the world. He'll become the one through whom that promise to Abraham is fulfilled. This is what Genesis 49, 8-10 says. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub, From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Now listen closely. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Plural. The multitudes will be ruled by a descendant of Judah who is a descendant of Abraham. And then we read a little further. And God raises up Moses to deliver the the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And Moses then prophesies that God will raise up a future prophet from within Israel whom the Jews must obey. This is a very important passage, and we miss over this sometimes. But listen to what Genesis 18, 15, and then 18 through 19 says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, and whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. A prophet like Moses, who will be raised up from among the people, and there to obey his commands, because they come from the Lord." So as we come to the end of Genesis through Deuteronomy, here's where we are in the story. And this is that summary statement in italics. The law teaches that God will raise up a human son of Jewish ethnicity, particularly from Judah's lineage. This son will be both a prophet and a king. God will bless all nations through this son, prophet, king. And he will destroy the enemy. That's part one of our story. Any questions before we talk about what the prophets have to say? We're going to unfold it 
as we move through the canon of Scripture. Yes. Yeah. So the question is, when we're talking about the multitudes, do we mean both Jews and Gentiles? And the answer is yes. So sometimes it's very specifically talking about the Jews, and it says that. But other times it uses language like multitudes or peoples or all the peoples, and that's a way to refer to everybody, not just the Jews. So let's talk about Jesus and the prophets. The prophets add further clues to the identity of this coming son, prophet, king. We learn that this figure will specifically be a king from the line of David and that he'll ultimately rule not only Israel, but the entire world. So this is from the, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel seven twelve through 16. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The interesting thing about this prophecy is that it is in the near sense referring to Solomon. And some of this is fulfilled by Solomon, including, when you sin, I will forgive you. But was Solomon's kingdom a forever kingdom? Did he rule over all the peoples? Clearly, God is speaking to a partial fulfillment in Solomon and a greater fulfillment in one who will rule all the nations, one who will be a forever king from this same line. We also see Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Now, try not to sing along while I'm reading out loud, but this is what it says. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Another promise of more or less the same thing that there will be this son of David who will be a king who will rule over all people and he'll do it forever. And then we see that this son, prophet, king will be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. But his birth will not be his beginning. He existed from before the world's foundation. 
these two passages that we're getting ready to read mark the first clear evidence that there's going to be something miraculous about this coming figure. Now, it's been hinted at with uh, being able to defeat Satan and, and ruling forever. I mean, that, that doesn't sound like a normal king, but now we're really getting into miraculous talk. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Or Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So in some sense, he existed before he existed. He will be born in Bethlehem. He will be conceived by a virgin. Now to anticipate a question someone may have, someone may be wondering, I read somewhere that that word translated virgin can actually mean young woman. So how do we know that she was a virgin and not just a young woman that was being talked about? And, uh, and the answer is that word can mean young woman or virgin. But the New Testament makes clear she's not just a young woman, she's a virgin. And we read the Old Testament in light of the greater revelation that we have in the New Testament. So if all we had was Isaiah 7.14, we would be 50-50 on whether this word means virgin or whether it means young woman. But the New Testament makes clear she's a young woman who was a virgin. And that's why we see this as pointing to the virgin birth and not just any non-miraculous birth that would uh, be a young woman who gives birth to someone who's going to be the king. So here's our summary for the prophets. The prophets teach that the son prophet king will be a descendant of David who will be conceived without sexual intercourse, born in Bethlehem, and will rule all the nations of the world. This figure has existed from all eternity. Now there is one other major group of passages we're not talking about tonight. The prophets also, especially Isaiah, talk about a suffering servant. But we're intentionally waiting a couple of weeks to talk about that whenever we get to the work of Christ and we see how the Old Testament points not just to who Jesus is but to what Jesus is going to do on behalf of sinners. So you might just want to write in the side uh, Isaiah 53, uh, that's one we could have read, but again, it's referring a little bit more to what Jesus does, uh, and that's why we're not taking the time to go through that tonight. So then we come to the writings, and I'm following the, uh, the Hebrew ordering of the Bible where we go law, prophets, and writings. So now we're moving into the... Because that's how Jesus would have read it. That's how the, uh, the early church would have read it, is in that Jewish ordering, which is a little bit different than our Old Testaments that we have in our Bibles. Same books, but in a different order. So now we're talking about the writings. They complete our Old Testament understanding of the person of the son, prophet, king. Now this is especially true in the Psalms. And for the sake of space, I'm not going to read each of these Psalms because we would be here all night. Um, I'm going to summarize what they say and commend them to you for further study. So Psalm 2 speaks of the Lord's anointed or chosen one, 
who will reign over all the nations and claims that this anointed or chosen one will be the Lord's son. Psalm 16 speaks of the Lord's holy one who will not rot in the grave. The New Testament writers regularly refer to this as a prophecy of Jesus' resurrection. It doesn't say resurrection, but it says he's not going to rot in the grave. So when the apostles come along, and we've seen this multiple times in the book of Acts, uh, both in Peter's preaching in Acts 2 and Paul's preaching in Acts 13, they point to this as a prophecy of the resurrection. Psalm 22 speaks of a righteous sufferer who will be forsaken by God and will suffer greatly, only to be restored and proclaim God's name to the end of the earth. Jesus himself identifies with this righteous sufferer sufferer, when he's hanging on the cross. In Matthew 27, 46 and Mark 15, 34, Jesus prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the beginning of this psalm. He identifies with Psalm 22 saying this psalm is speaking of him. Psalm 110 speaks of the Davidic king who is also a priest. So this son, prophet, priest, king will defeat God's enemies, Psalm 110 says, and sit at God's right hand. This passage, here's your trivia for the night, Psalm 110, this passage is cited more often in the New Testament than any other Old Testament passage. They knew this passage was talking about Jesus, and they referred to it all the time. Now, also in the writings in the Hebrew Bible, there's one book that we put in the prophets in our modern Old Testaments. That's the book of Daniel, because Daniel was a prophet. But during Jesus' day, in the day of the apostles, it was listed in the writings. So that's why I have it here, because we're looking at it in the order that the apostles would have looked at it. And in Daniel, it speaks of a figure like a son of man who will rule over all the nations in a kingdom that will last forever. This is what Daniel 7, 13 and 14 say. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was presented before him. And to him, the one like the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What's interesting about that Daniel passage, it's also also often cited in the New Testament, and it's almost definitely the last thing to be written of all the things we've just read. And so it's almost like the exclamation point on the end of what the Old Testament says about Jesus. And so here's our summary of the whole Old Testament. It tells us about a figure who is a human son of Jewish ethnicity from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David, who will be born of a virgin in Bethlehem, who will conquer Satan, who will be a prophet, who will be a priest, who will be a king who rules an eternal kingdom, 
comprised of all the nations of the earth who will rise from the dead, who is the Son of God, who existed in eternity before his physical birth. Brothers and sisters, this is what I want you to see. If all we had was the Old Testament, we would know who Jesus is. We just would not know his name. But we would know what to be looking for. We sometimes think about how the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others, Jews who did not believe, responded to Jesus in rejecting him. And we say, oh, well, the Jews rejected him because they didn't know what they were looking for. But remember that there were also many Jews who encountered Jesus and said, he's the one. As they begin to see these things fulfilled in Jesus' life. And after his resurrection, there was a whole movement of believing Jews. And then believing Gentiles added to that, who said, that's the guy. I've used this illustration to speak uh, about some other topics before, so some of you have heard it. But raise your hand if you've ever been in a room where there was a light attached to a dimmer switch. You know how that works? So let's say we're in this room, and it's at dusk, and there's a dimmer switch that's not turned on. We can look in this room and we can see that there are chairs and tables and that there's carpet and we can see there's a stage up front and there's a sound booth in the back and we can tell that that's there. But if we start to turn up that dimmer switch incrementally, more and more of it comes into focus. We notice that it's brown carpet and brown chairs were very colorful at, uh, at Taylor's First Baptist. We notice that the microphones are black. We notice that the walls are painted kind of an off-white. And we see that uh, there's a drum set that's up here and that there's a keyboard that's up here. And, and, And by the time the lights are all the way up, we see all of that with clarity. Now, from the moment we stepped into the room until the moment we turned it all the way up, did anything change about the room? Was anything added to the room that wasn't there at the beginning? The only thing that's changed is our ability to perceive what's in the room. And that's what happens as we move from Genesis to the New Testament. There is nothing new in the New Testament about the identity of the Son of God. We just learn who He is as it's all fulfilled And we begin to see his identity in its fullness. Any questions before we move into the New Testament? By the way, this is how they preached the gospel from the Old Testament before there was anything like the New Testament. Remember, the Old Testament is the Bible that Jesus read. It's the Bible that Paul and Peter preached from. The gospel is in the Old Testament. So let's talk about the New Testament. In the New Testament, there are four key passages that focus upon the person of Jesus, though there are lots and lots and lots and lots of shorter passages that also deal with this doctrine. But we're going to focus most of our attention on these four key texts, and we'll just go in the order that they're in our New Testament. 
So first, there's John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And I know it's 18 verses, but none of them are very long. And I'm going to read them because it's God's Word. And it's a good thing to hear God's Word being read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. John was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone who is coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. What a glorious passage. Now according to this passage, the word was present from the very beginning. Was alongside God and yet the word was also God. This figure was the agent through whom God created all things. He was the Son of God who was sent by God to dwell among men. In fact, he took upon himself humanity, though without ceasing to be God. His ministry was superior to that of Moses. He was rejected by a majority of those whom he created, including his fellow Jews. But anyone who believed in him rather than rejecting him received eternal life and was adopted into God's spiritual family. John the Baptist testified to this figure's identity and mission. In fact, you'll probably be familiar, we didn't read it, with John one twenty nine. just a few verses later when uh, John the Baptist points to his cousin, Jesus of Nazareth, and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Two things about this passage I think are especially worth deeper reflection. First, that Greek word logos that we translate as word in our English Bibles is regularly used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to speak of God's word in creation and providence. So when they're hearing Logos, they're thinking of God's powerful word through which he acted. But what we see in John 1 is that the word is a person through whom God acts. 
the eternal Son, Jesus Christ. Now, there's some mystery here, folks. Is it referring to God's words, or is it referring to that person? And the answer is yes. That God's words work through the word, the eternal Son. Second, the Greek phrase that's translated as dwelt among us or dwelt among men in most Bibles literally means to pitch a tent or a tabernacle among us. So the Apostle John is identifying Jesus also with the tabernacle, which in the Old Testament was the place where God uniquely lived among his covenant people in the years following the giving of the Mosaic Law. The idea that would have rung in their ears but that sometimes we have to dig a little bit deeper to see, is that Jesus is the true tabernacle of God because he is the God-man among his fellow men, ushering in that new covenant, just like the original tabernacle was where God's people met with God under that first covenant. It's remarkable. Let's look at Philippians 2. Verses 5 through 11. Again, very familiar. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this is technically a passage about how we should be humble just as Jesus was humble but it also tells us an awful lot about Jesus' identity. Jesus was in the form of God, literally of the same stuff of God. But in humility, he chose not to claim his equality with God. Instead, he became a servant, being born as a man and serving humanity through his obedient death on a cross. Because of this humble servanthood, God has elevated Jesus by giving him the highest of names. And every living creature will one day bow to Jesus and confess that he is Yahweh, the name above all names, which will glorify the Father. Now it's important to understand what Paul means in verse 7 when he says that Jesus made himself nothing or some Bible translations say emptied himself, which is a literal translation. Some have argued that that means the eternal son gave up some of his divine attributes when he became the man, Jesus of Nazareth. But if that was the case, then Jesus wasn't fully God in the same sense that the Father is God. Jesus is emptying himself refers to his humble decision to not exercise all the prerogatives of his divine identity, 
but instead to fully identify with his human creatures through the incarnation. This is what we mean by that. Jesus doesn't zap his enemies even though he could. Jesus didn't choose to know everything he could have at all times even though he could. I mean, you think about this. This is Jesus who it says knows the hearts of all men, but he also doesn't know the time he's coming back. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but in some mysterious way, Jesus could choose what he wanted to know among everything that could be known and what he didn't want to know. And we're in the realm of mystery, but this is part of what it meant for Jesus to fully identify with humanity. And then there's Colossians 1, 15 through 20. This is my favorite passage in the New Testament. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. According to this passage, Jesus is the image, literally the icon of the invisible God. In other words, the invisible God is made visible through Jesus. He's the firstborn of all creation and the one who created all things for his glory. He existed before creation. And he sustains creation. He is also the head of the church, which is called his body. He is the first to rise again from the dead. And because of his resurrection, he reigns supreme in the universe. All that is true of God is true of Jesus, who is reconciling all creation to himself through his saving work on the cross. Now, this passage is arguably the most controversial passage in the Bible in church history. We'll talk a lot about that next week, but I'll give you a foretaste now. Unitarians, those who believe that Jesus is not a divine figure in the same sense that God the Father is a divine figure, claim that if Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, which is what Paul says in verse 15, then he cannot be eternal. You can't be born and have been around forever. And that's clearly talking about eternity past, not the incarnation when Jesus of Nazareth is conceived in the virgin's womb. It's talking about from before time, the firstborn of all creation. So they said, we should think of Jesus as the oldest of all creatures. So this is what capital U Unitarians believe. This is what our 
Jehovah's Witnesses' friends believe. This is what uh, many liberal Protestants and Catholics believe. But if this were true, it would make Jesus less than fully divine. And that would contradict what Paul writes in the rest of this passage and, and the rest of the New Testament about Jesus being divine. So the Old Testament gives us a clue as to what Paul means whenever he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. In the Old Testament, it isn't uncommon for a non-firstborn son to be elevated to the place of the firstborn son and receive the father's inheritance or blessing. Jacob was the second twin to come out, but Jacob received the blessing, not Esau. We read a few minutes ago, Judah is not the oldest of Jacob's sons, but Judah is the one through whom the line of Jesus is going to come. Sometimes the term firstborn is explicitly used to speak of rank of honor rather than literal birth order. The best example is in Psalm 89.27, where David is called Jesse's firstborn even though he was the youngest of Jesse's sons. What the psalmist means is that David is the most important of Jesse's sons. So this is clearly symbolic language that's drawing upon the Old Testament, a regularly recurring theme that's speaking more to honor than birth order because the eternal son was never born or he wouldn't be the eternal son. But he's always been the firstborn of all creation above and beyond everything that God created. Finally, there's Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. According to this passage, God speaks through his son in the same way he once spoke through the prophets. The son is the agent of creation and the heir of all things. He is the radiance of of God's glory, which is another way of saying God's glory shines brightest through Jesus. He is the exact imprint of God's nature, meaning that what is true of God is true of the Son. He sustains the universe by the word of his power, which is also how he created the universe in the first place, by the word of his power. And after offering himself up as a sacrifice for sin... He was seated at God's right hand, which in ancient cultures was the place of highest honor where one co-rules with the king. He is superior to the angels because his name, Yahweh, is greater than their names. For the most part, this passage just further confirms the other three passages. 
But Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 alone ties Jesus to the prophets in their words. The author is saying that everything that the prophets preached was really about Jesus and ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus, who is himself greater than those prophets. Remember, we know from Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, that the promised one would be a prophet like Moses, but even better. That Jesus and his covenant is better than Moses and his covenant is the key theme of the book of Hebrews. It's all about Jesus being greater than the prophets, greater than Moses, greater than the angels. Now, the New Testament also confirms lots of other details that the Old Testament promises about the person of Jesus, but that aren't found in these four most important passages. So I'm just going to give you kind of a bird's eye view of prophecies fulfilled. The first chapters of Matthew and Luke indicate Jesus was born of a virgin, which was promised in Isaiah 7.14. And again, those two passages make clear she wasn't just a young woman, which wouldn't be miraculous, but she was a virgin. The second chapters of Matthew and Luke indicate Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which was promised in Micah 5.2. The genealogies of Jesus found in Matthew 1 and Luke 3 claim Jesus descended from Abraham, Judah, and David. He was tied to these three men's bloodlines in Genesis 17, the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 49, the promise to Judah, and 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. Romans 16.20 and Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, mention Jesus' defeat of Satan, which was promised in Genesis 3.15, that very first promise. Hebrews chapter 5 through 7 argue that Jesus is a high priest from the order of Melchizedek, which was promised explicitly in Psalm 110 verse 4. In the Gospels, Jesus regularly uses the title Son of Man, which tied him to that promised figure in Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. And I just give you three examples here in Matthew 18, Mark 2, John 8. But there's numerous times in the Gospels where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. So how do we tie all this together when we're thinking about the New Testament? Here's what we would say. There is absolutely no doubt that the Gospel writers, Paul, and the author of Hebrews, if that's not Paul all understood Jesus to be the fulfillment of the eternal sin-conquering son, prophet, king, priest who was promised in the Old Testament. If we believe the scriptures are trustworthy, we too should believe that Jesus is who the scriptures say he is. Jesus is promised in the Old Testament And he is fulfilled in the New Testament. He is there in the Old Testament and the light is fully turned on in the New Testament. The apostles preached the full gospel that was preached in promised form by the saints of the Old Testament. This 
is our Jesus. Now, I want to make some recommendations to you in a minute, but before I do that, do you have any questions about what the text says about Jesus? Again, next week, if you want to join us in the loft, we'll look at all the different debates in church history and different positions and kind of put it all together in a little bit more of a a systematic form. But our, our job tonight is we just want to survey who Jesus is from the scriptures. But any questions? Let me say this. When we do theology right, it causes us to worship God. When we do theology right, it causes us to love our neighbors, both our brothers and sisters in Christ and the lost. I don't know about you, but when I think about the identity of Jesus from Genesis to Revelation, I am moved to worship in my heart. This is such glorious truth. Now let me make some recommendations. Those of you who have been with us on Wednesday nights know that I love to recommend books and Jeremy loves to buy books for our resource center. So I want to recommend several books at several different levels based on what you might be interested in. So first I want to begin for those of you who are really bold and you're saying, I love to read for theology. I love to read theology for fun. Give me a challenging book. Uh, Steve Wellam, who is a Southern Baptist theologian, his book, God the Incarnate, The Doctrine of Christ, is, I think, the very best seminary-level study of the doctrine of Christ. And so if you want to read what the seminary students are reading, that's the book for you. But Dr. Wellam has also written a shorter book that's kind of something in between a popular book and a scholarly book. We might think about semi-popular, semi-scholarly, kind of intermediate level. And it's called The Person of Christ and Introduction. Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern Seminary, has written a book called Christology, The Study of Christ. And I think this is the very best popular level introduction to the doctrine of Christ. If you wanted to study some of these passages as part of your quiet time for six weeks or eight weeks, this would be your go-to book to, uh, to dig a little bit deeper, but without having to get in the scary seminary waters. Maybe you have a young person in your life who's asking questions about Jesus. Greg Allison's book, Jesusology, Understanding What You Believe About Jesus and Why, is a helpful introduction to what we've talked about tonight, but it's written for teenagers. And so he's writing with 13 to 20-year-olds in mind. And then it would be a great book to hand to that young person in your life who's wanting to dig a little bit deeper. And finally, if you really just like what we did tonight, and you really want to focus on kind of the biblical picture of Jesus, there's other stuff we could talk about, but man, I just want to really be in the Scriptures Daryl Bach and Benjamin Simpson's book, Jesus According to the Scriptures, is kind of like a college-level textbook, that just but, but very well written. Don't think dry, boring textbook, not like the bad ones that you had. Think about the best ones that you had. Uh, it, it's kind of a textbook introduction that just 
from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John puts it all together to give us kind of a comprehensive picture of who the Jesus of the Gospels is. And if any of you are saying, hey, oh, there's one more. I forgot. I go one more page on my sheet. And then if any of you are interested in uh, the whole uh, issue about the historical Jesus, maybe you've seen some special on the history program that says Jesus isn't who you think he is, or you've grabbed one of those uh, magazines from the checkout line at Kroger that says who is the real Jesus. You should never grab those magazines, but maybe you did, and now you're worried about it. Uh, Marvin Pate's book, 40 Questions About the Historical Jesus, is just a great introduction that deals with all of those sorts of questions that uh, kind of the popular critics raise about the identity of Jesus. I would recommend any of these books to any of you who are interested in any of these books. And if uh, you say, I'm not interested in any of those, talk to me about a different book about Jesus. I'd love to talk to you one-on-one about that. But any closing questions now that you've had a couple more minutes to think about it? Yes, ma'am. So the question is, can we add those references in the Old Testament to Jesus that caused people to know what they were looking for? Is there a way to add those to the webpage for the Equip Institute, which is part of our church's webpage? And I'm not sure, but I think that Jeremy and I can talk about that. There might be a way to do that or maybe have a handout or something that's available. We can definitely think about that. Yeah, just just a handy reference sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, we'll think about that. Thank you for that suggestion. Anybody else? Brothers and sisters, this is our king. May we worship him and witness him, witness on his behalf. And if you want to learn more about him, we will be here next week. Same bat time, but different bat channel because we'll be up there in the loft. Let me close us in prayer. Lord, we thank you for King Jesus. We know, Father, that if Jesus is king, this changes everything. And we're so grateful. Lord, we're thankful that Scripture gives us this compelling picture of who Jesus is from creation to consummation, King of kings and Lord of lords, the Messiah of our Jewish friends and the King of all who bow the knee to him by grace through faith. Lord, in everything that we do at Taylor's First Baptist, may we be a Jesus-loving people for your glory, for our good, and for the sake of the lost and the hurting. And we pray these things.